No, thank you for being here. At, just as a way of review, um, remember from last week, we talked especially about, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the phrase in Matthew chapter 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we talked about the phrase, uh, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Uh, he, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And we looked at that from different perspectives, looked at the context of the word saved and, uh, and the idea of endurance and what is in view there. And we saw that uh, although, and I, I read a number of quotations, both from, both from the, uh, uh, the London Confession, Baptist Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, those two confessions cover like a huge majority of what... Of what uh, Protestants, you know, Protestants think and believe. And, uh, and then I also read some quotations from like the Latter-day Saints, which is the Mormon church, and how, those, how this phrase has been cherry-picked to apply to everyone at all, all periods of time, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't reflect the context in which it was spoken. And uh, so... Uh, listen, it's a big, I've said this before, I'll say it again. You make a big, we make a big mistake by trying to force every square peg in the scripture into our round hole. Uh, just like Jesus said, remember with John the Baptist? He said that new wine must be put in new bottles, right? New wine, you can't put new wine in old bottles because the bottles are burst because, uh, of course, back then it, bo- bottles were made, of, uh, were made of skin and they would stretch. And uh, so the idea, being that, uh, the idea being that when you try to take every, every, every piece of truth and, and force it into your own, uh, your own kind of doctrinal time period, then you can create a lot of problems. And uh, so that's what we're doing. We're trying to uh, understand. We're trying to uh, look at this uh, Olivet Discourse in context. So we looked at that verse. Hopefully it brought you some clarity to what is in view there. Of course, we know what the end of this is. The end of the Olivet Discourse, which I hope we get to the, to the end at least of the coming of the Lord today. The end of it is Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming to judge the world for its iniquity, and He's coming to rescue and fulfill His promises to His people, His earthly people, Israel, for the ultimate purpose of establishing the kingdom on earth that He has promised. And so the kingdom is coming to this world, and He is going to cleanse it of sin and he is going to, uh, and he's going to set up a kingdom. Now there are uh, some verses that encapsulate that. You look at uh, in in the book of Daniel. There are some verses that encapsulate that. Of course, in the Gospels that say that very plainly. That when Jesus comes, he's coming to set up a kingdom, to sit up on a throne, and that's what his coming is. Is what it is. It's an invasion, right? It's an invasion. In heaven, uh, in Revelation, you read about how the, the kingdoms of this world, how many of you have, have listened to the Hallelujah Chorus? The king, it says, quoting from the scripture, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. That's from Revelation. Well, that's a statement in heaven, if you read the context of that. But then w- when Jesus comes, He's coming to take possession of that which is His. And, 
and to become the king. And, and there's, a, there's an excellent parable, I think it's in Luke, how, that, uh, how a man went on a long journey to receive a kingdom. And he came back. He came back in order to take the kingdom that he had received. And that's basically, Jesus has been gone a while, but he's coming back to take the kingdom that he has been promised. And he's going to do so by force. And we're going to look at the reasons why he must do so by force. Uh, today. So let's pray and then we're going to start reading in the book of Luke chapter 21. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for all the people that are here and are listening and on, on their way. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless our Sunday school with your grace and power. Lord, you know how much we need you to teach us. Lord, I pray that you would help your people to grow uh, through this class and through these lessons. Uh, help us to see the, the things we need to see and guide us in each and everything we study. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So Luke chapter 21, if you would read, uh, turn there, and we will read, starting in verse number 25. Of course, this is a parallel passage to the Olivet Discourse as found in Matthew chapter 24. It's a little bit different as you will see, and I just want you to be aware of this very briefly. The language is very similar to what we've read, but there are key differences. Um, for instance, in Luke chapter 21, uh, verse 12, uh, verse 11, it talks about diverse, pla diverse places of the earthquakes and famines and pestilences. We read about that. Verse tw uh, that's verse 11. Verse 12 uh, talks about, the Lord talks about persecution, which was also in Matthew. And then you go on down to verse number uh, 17. This verse is in Matthew as well, 24. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And then you go down to verse 20. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. Now follow the context. We, the reason we've spent so much time in Matthew 24 is so that when you see something that's different, you recognize it, okay? So Matthew 24, or uh, Luke 21, verse 20 says, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the, des the desolation thereof is nigh. Now you might be inclined to equate the word desolation here with the abomination of desolation that was in Matthew 24. But that's, this is not the same word. This desolation is a reference to Jerusalem, right? The de desolation thereof, that is, of Jerusalem, is nigh. Verse 21, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them which are in the countries, there, uh, countries enter therein too. For these shall be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, that, that's similar to Matthew 24, remember? What is the trigger for those that, in, that are in Judea to, to run, to flee? Anybody remember? What's the trigger? Where the Lord says, when you see this, you better run. It's that abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist comes into the temple and causes the sacrifices there to cease and makes himself to be, basically to be God there. The Lord says, when you see that run, now this is similar language, but read it. There are key distinctions. He says, 
For these, verse 22, shall be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people." Verse 24, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. That's different, right? In Matthew it says they're going to they're gonna go to another, they're going to flee and then they'll be protected until Jesus comes. This says those in Jerusalem will be taken captive and scattered upon, upon, uh, to all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So this is not referring to the, the imminent return of Christ. This is actually referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. When armies surrounded Jerusalem, the Roman army in particular, and, and uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews were scattered throughout all nations, and that has been the case all, even up to this very moment because we're still in this times of the Gentiles in which they control Jerusalem, all right? And so, no, but notice the time, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now look at verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun. Now notice, there is no time word here. It doesn't say when this happens. It just says that it does, right? Because you know a huge span of time has happened because it talks about Jerusalem shall be trodden down of, of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So you know there's a huge span of time there. And then the next thing we read is, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and way, the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now this is talking about the coming of Christ. But you can see how it jumped, as is so common in the Scripture. There's a, there's a jump in time, because then you come into the unique heavenly and supernatural signs that we read in Matthew 24, the sun and the moon and the stars. And then it says, Jesus is coming. Now, I want to ask you a question. In popular culture, what are some of the greatest calamities that can happen upon the earth? Do not say an alien invasion. Asteroid. What else? An asteroid hitting the earth in popular culture. I mean, they make movies about this where they go, you know, it's an asteroid. And, you know, they you know, try to blow it up or whatever. I mean, it's in Star Trek. It's in, you know, every, it's in everything. All right, what else? Alien invasion. <sighs> I said we cannot say alien invasions. <laughs> Zombie apocalypse. <laughs> that was a good one, all right. That's actually not one I thought about. Volcano, volcano eruptions. They, they, they've been talking about the super volcano that's under Yellowstone National Park. If it erupted, what would happen? And, you know, basically the world would be, I don't know, split in half or whatever happens. Yeah. Yeah, tsunamis as a result of great earthquaques. All right. What else? 
Climate change. Okay, that's interesting. So that would be variations in temperature and stuff like that. What else? Who's next? I couldn't hear you. Nuclear war. Okay. Real pandemics. Okay. Real pandemics. Uh, and I'm sure by real, he means much, much, much worse than what we have now. Correct. What else? Nuclear war, world war, what else? How about famine? Widespread worldwide famine. You know, you think of Ukraine. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, and much of, and, and Ukraine, Ukraine's growth of grain, and that being hindered by the war there, hinder, that affects the prices of things in other countries as well, even in our country, because grain from the United States then must be exported, and so the price goes up. And that's really, famine is basically, you know, you talk about the way we view famine is famine is prices get so high you can't buy what you need, but the question is why do prices get so high? It's because there's less availability of that thing, and that can be a result of climate problems or disease or whatever. So you have widespread famine, we have earthquakes, tsunamis, asteroids, volcanoes erupting, plagues, nuclear war. You know what? These are the things that in popular culture are described as apocalyptic, right? Right? I mean, you, you've, seen, you've seen stuff like that. This is the end of the world. All of these things happen before Jesus returns. That's pretty frightening. Large bodies, heavenly bodies falling out of the sky. There's two instances of that in Revelation. Look at, look at verse 26, or uh, verse 25. Just an interesting note. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. I mean, listen. Those, those heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, are so constant that they have been, they, they can be predicted where they're going to be for, for timekeeping thousands and thousands of years into the future and into the past. Those are, those are constants unlike what you see here on earth. On earth, things are constantly changing because of weather and climate patterns and those kinds of things. And you have you know, earthquakes and floods and stuff that, re, re, uh, that, 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 that change the landscape and such. But the heavenly bodies are fixed. Now imagine the fear and terror that would come over someone, would come over me, <laughs> if I saw a change in the heavenly bodies. I mean, that, that, would be, that would be probably the most frightening thing that I can think of happening. You know, that, that, that would be terrifying. But this says, notice this, and in the stars and upon earth, distress of nations, that's talking, you know, you think about war, famine, with perplexity, look at this. The sea and the waves roaring. That seems like an odd place to talk about waves. Unless you're talking about tsunamis, which are related to earthquakes and volcanic activity, which are both, the, the earthquakes especially, earthquakes and volcanoes go together, right? And tsunamis are, are the result of earthquakes. So you think about, all of these cataclysmic and apocalyptic type of events are written about in the Scripture as a matter of prophecy 
many, many years before there was ever pop culture like we see it in the, in the movies and TV and all that. And those things will happen. All of the things that people have dreamt about and had nightmares about and therefore, of course, have put it into movies will come to pass. And that's why we have verse 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. So the last thing I want to say about the time of tribulation, and then we're turning the page, is when God brings judgment upon this world, uh, it will be widespread and it will be severe. It will be severe. Uh, and God does give us an admonition that we need to remember that those that we care about and those that we love, if they live to that time, will face God's judgment. And that's a very sobering thought. But for the Christian, there is not one flicker, not one fiber of God's being that wants to or will judge us. Think about that. Now, he'll judge our works for on the basis of rewards that we'll do. But as far as our relationship to God, none of those judgments, none of those have any relationship to us. We, listen now, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no animosity. There is no uh, fault. There's no rift between God and us. God has no fiber of his being that, that desires or has, has an urge whatsoever to judge us in this manner. We are safe. That should give us great hope. That should give us great hope. And that's kind of the basis of where we get the rapture. That's, that's kind of the doctrinal underpinning, if you can say it like that, the foundation for the rapture of the church, which we'll see. Now look at Matthew 24, if you would. We'll try to go through some of these things quickly because I really would like to finish so we can move on to some other things next week. So the tribulation is coming to an end. God is pouring, God is just, just piling it on. In short order, in short, short succession, God is judgment after judgment, especially toward the end, is terrible, terrible things happening. People are dying, I mean, by the millions and millions and millions. And the people that are alive wish they were dead. Okay? Verse 29. Now, in Matthew 24, the, the battle of Armageddon is not mentioned. The Battle of Armageddon. We're going we're gonna to mention that briefly, but let's read verse 29 and verse, uh, verse, through verse 31. The Bible says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's what we just finished discussing, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. We've read that many times in different passages that talk about signs in the heavens, all right? 
I don't know if this sign occurs once or multiple times because in Revelation, it's not perfectly clear when this happens, but this, Matthew 24, tells us that it happens just prior to the Lord's appearance, okay? And the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then, then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is a public event. Every eye will see him. Like verse 27 says, it'll be like lightning. It'll light up the whole sky. No one will miss it. No one will miss it. This is not secret. This is not private. Verse 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from the one end of heaven to the other. All right, pause. Now I'm going to posit to you that this is not a reference to the rapture. The gathering of the elect here, because you have to read the word elect in the context of this chapter, because it's also found in verse number 22. During the tribulation, talks about the elect being saved. So the elect in the context... Christians in the church are not anywhere in this context, number one. Number two, this gathering is not a gathering to heaven, but it is, is a gathering on earth. That's why it references earthly words like from the, the, the four winds, which references the directions. And furthermore, this gathering is not a reference to the rapture of the church because the angels do it. What does 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 say? For the Lord, what, what's the next word? Key word, himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. All right, so, so when, when the Lord comes in the rapture, he comes himself personally. But in this case, the angels are gathering together his elect from the four winds. And remember, again, you, you, we have doctrinal underpinning for it because you have to remember in the rapture, we go to be with Jesus. He's in the clouds, right? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. But in this, in this instance, these are the people gathered together for his kingdom. There's a different thing in view entirely, okay? Now, I want, I don't, I want to move on from that so we can continue. So as I said, the battle of Armageddon is not mentioned. So let's look at it. Let's look at Revelation chapter 16. What is this battle of Armageddon? Brother Lester, have you seen the, the Valley of Megiddo? Have you ever been there? I didn't know if you had or not. I've seen pictures of it, but that, that don't mean anything. <clears throat> let's read verses 8 through 16. Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 through 16. Listen to this. <clears throat> this is at, toward the end of the tribulation. Verse 8 says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. That's climate change. <laughs> the climate changes really fast. All right? Um, now, these vials that are being poured out, look like vials, bottles, bowls, whatever you want, whatever, you, however you visualize it, they're being poured out upon the earth in quick succession. 
They're terrible things. And verse 9 says, And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give Him glory. Now remember, this is at the end. People that are alive at this point have lived through a great deal of suffering. And they're still unrepentant. All right? Verse 11 uh, verse uh, 10, rather. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and the ki- his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Now hold your place here and look at chapter 9, verse 20. He's talking about these scorpions that are one of the plagues that comes uh, during the tribulation to do men harm, to judge, to judge men. Verse 20 of chapter 9 says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So God's pouring it on thick. Men are not repenting. God's judging them. There is a witness to the truth Right during that time period as well, which we haven't talked a lot about, but it's there's witnesses there. The gospel, if you will, is being heard. Men are not repenting; they're being judged, not repenting. You know what this shows us? This shows us that, um, despite the supernatural and extraordinary signs that these men have seen, experienced, and suffered through. And, of course, they know these supernatural signs from heaven, all these terrible judgments we read about, can only be done at the hand of God. These are not things like, you know, too, many, too much gas from cows are causing the temperature to go up. We're not talking about that. We're talking about supernatural judgments from God. They know, the inhabitants of the earth, know God is responsible. Yet they still seek to fight against Him. They refuse to repent. They refuse to turn away from their sin. Their heart is not softened by judgment. And here's a key. This is a general scriptural truth. For people who do not know God, unbelievers, judgment does not change them. It hardens them. Now for a child of God whose heart has been renewed by the new birth, Chastening is, is, remember, chastening and uh, uh, chastisement, as the Scripture says, is corrective. It's designed to correct behavior. But judgment of the unbeliever is punitive. God does not intend for them to change because they won't, and He knows it. That's why the idea of purgatory is, is silly. 
Because when people, when people, if people went to a place like that, which doesn't exist, but if they did, their hearts would not change. And this is proven at least four times in the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 16 again. They blasphemed God, verse 12, and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water there was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now this is, this is a preparation for the battle of Armageddon. And I saw three unclean, fro- unclean spirits like frogs. These are not frogs. These are like frogs. This is how you identify symbolism in the book of Revelation. Come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth. Now listen to this. These are demonic powers that go forth unto the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So what is driving them toward this climactic moment? when these, these nations come together to fight God, okay? That's the key. They come together to fight God. What is driving them? Satanic power, all right? Behold, Jesus interjects here. I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon which means the Mount of Megiddo. That's what that means, all right? Now let's look at chapter 19. It says this, verse number 14. I'm sorry, verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. The idea, the idea there being he's, he's trampling people and their blood is splattering on him. Boy, this is far from the common idea of of the God of love. Now, this is the same one whose blood was shed on the cross out of love. That's amazing. The same person. But at this point, love is not on his mind, if you could say it like that, right? And his name is called the Word of God. Of course, that identifies him as Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. Notice this. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now look at verse 9. Uh, I'm sorry, verse number 8. And to her, this is to the, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, If you read in context, his wife, verse 7 says, his wife hath made herself ready, and to her, his wife, that's the Lamb's wife, Jesus' wife, that's the bride of Christ, okay? That is us, right? Does everybody understand that that's what the Scriptures teach? 
Ephesians chapter 5 makes that perfectly clear. The bride of Christ is the church. That body of believers composed of every born-again believing person in Christ. It says this, To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. All right, so there you have the symbolism. Now look at verse number 14 again. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, clean and white. So the fine linen is the clothing of the saints. So these armies are not angels. These armies are saints. And they're wearing the same clothes as is mentioned just a few verses previous. And I submit to you, and not just from the, only this verse, but a whole lot of other things, that this army that's following Jesus from heaven down to earth in his second advent is his bride, the church. That's what the scriptures demonstrate. Okay, keep going. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You have a picture of a, of a, of a wine vat with grapes put into it and people go in there and stomp it, but in there is sinners, humankind, and Jesus is stomping them. All right, that's a, it's just, the, the imagery is crazy. Verse 16, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls of, that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Okay? So you'll, you'll see in just a minute, we have just a few minutes, and we're going we're gonna to read another passage. Here's what you'll see. That this, this army has invaded the land of Israel, the Holy Land for the intention and for the purpose of destroying Jerusalem, in particular God's people. Remember, the devil is angry at the Jews, right? That's what we read earlier. So they've come in to destroy Jerusalem, and while they are there, God turns the lights out. That kind of reminds you of Egypt, right? When the, the children of Israel came out of Egypt. God turn, he says the, the sun and the moon and the stars go black. And then Jesus appears, the, the heavens open, and Jesus appears, some sign, maybe it was he himself, but he appears with great glory. And there's an army. And you know what all these, this army here that, that is present in Israel at that time, do you know what they see? They see him. That's what we know from this. Is that while they're on their way, Jesus turns the lights out, and then he appears in great glory like the lightning across the sky. Everybody the world over can see it. And they, they see him, these armies that have gathered for this purpose. They see him and they turn their attention from Jerusalem 
and they turn it to Jesus, right? They still haven't repented. God Almighty is coming from heaven after all of these judgments, and they are still intent on fighting him. It's just, it's insanity. Not only do they see him, these verses say, they see his army. They see us. Now look at this. Not much of a battle if you ask me. Verse 19, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. We've talked about that. With which he deceived them that had the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. We could talk about that another time, but there's a whole doctrinal thing here uh, about the lake of fire, but we'll move on. Verse 21, and the remnant of the army, that is, were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and the fowls were filled with their flesh. In other words, that army, however big it was, I don't know, but that army who is preparing to war against Jesus Christ coming, they see him. And with just a word, they are obliterated. How you say, great question. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 14 to answer that question. Zechariah chapter 14 describes this same scene in prophetic form. Verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be delivered in the midst of thee. For, now listen to this, God speaking. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. You see, that's, that's why I'm telling you that the armies had invaded Israel to go against Jerusalem. That was their purpose. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. That's Jesus coming. Verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. You know where that is, right? Brother Lester's been there, I bet, right? It's just to the east of Jerusalem. Jesus comes and he'll step on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave or be divided in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove to the north and half of it toward the south. So basically, there'll be a, a narrow place that goes right through the center of the Mount of Olives as a path from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, okay? Because you'll see in a minute, there'll be a river there that will, that will be there during the kingdom. There shall be a very great valley, uh, verse 5, and ye shall flee to the valley uh, of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, notice this, and all the saints with thee. So when Jesus comes, he doesn't come alone. We just read that. 
the saints are with him. Is that not exactly what we read in Revelation 19? Exactly the same. And what I submitted is those saints are the church. Okay? So if that's the case, if the saints are coming with Christ, then that means the saints have left the world before that time. Right? He's going to go buzz us out. I think he does that with a little bit of joy. Look at, look at this, and we're almost finished. Verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, and it shall, be, it, it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the behinder sea, in summer and in winter it shall be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. See, this is the purpose of His coming. In that day shall there be one Lord and His name one. Verse 11, And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now look at this. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. This is Armageddon here, according to verse 2. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. See that? Jesus appears, and according to the context, this is how he destroys them. Just a word, and they're obliterated as if they were in a, basically like a nuclear explosion. Their flesh is just melted away. Now, after this, the only thing that's left is, of course, there's a judgment of the nations, and we'll cover that to some degree, but after this, there is no, they resist His coming. He obliterates them, and He goes to Jerusalem, and He sets up His kingdom. And for 1,000 years, there's a, a reign of righteousness upon the earth, just like we read a minute ago. Now, here's what I want you to understand about Armageddon, is that the Lord removes all opposition to His reign, and He comes to set up His kingdom, And this concludes His coming. This concludes the second coming and is, opens the door for His reign, opens the door for the kingdom. And this is what, uh, and this is what the, we have to look forward to because we will be with Him at that time. We will reign, as the Bible says, we will rule and reign with Him. All right. I hope that's perfectly clear. I hope we've uh, we've covered that in uh, enough detail to understand the kind of the order of uh, of events. And of course, there's a lot more we could say, but we will have to end there.
All right? Let's pray.